Good morning. Welcome, please, to this special event at the United States Study Center. We are just uh, deeply honored, thrilled, actually, to have Larry Sabato, one of America's great political scientists, with us. And I'm joined by colleague Victoria Cooper. Um, Victoria is research associate, a rising scholar. She's immersed in American politics and policy. Her most recent articles have been on the Roe v. Wade, uh, Young Americans and How They're Going to Vote, and the Supreme Court, the new Black woman is going to join the court in the coming weeks and uh, is a rising scholar with us at the center. Um, Larry Sabato is a founder and director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. He is an author. He is an Emmy Award winner. Larry, I mean, we want to know about these Emmys and, uh, and have many more in your future. Um, he is the uh, founder, author, uh, and director for Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is the go-to publication for data-driven analysis on uh, political races in America. And as he um, told us uh, off camera a few moments ago, they don't. There are no toss-ups on Sabato's Crystal Ball. They call him. He has the courage to look at the situation and make a judgment as to where it's going to go. And the accuracy rate is tremendous. So it's uh, you can subscribe by email, and it's it's just terrific. And so Larry. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and before we formally begin, I do want to acknowledge in the traditions of the University of Sydney and the heritage of this country, uh, to acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on uh, the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora nation. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And uh, we further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on uh, which you are all on and Virginia has a rich tradition of native lands and native peoples. And we wanna pay our respects to uh, their elders past, present and future. So with that, Larry, welcome. It's just, uh, we hope to welcome you in person in Australia, if we can down the road. But in the meantime, to have you here this morning is just fantastic. And uh, I'd, I'd just like to open, tell us a little bit about, we, we will get to all the issues, the midterms, the abortion politics, Trump, the Republican party, the Democrats, President Biden, where they're standing. We'll get to all that, but tell us a little bit about more about the uh, Center for Politics that you have at the University of Virginia and what's keeping you busy these days. I'll be happy to, uh, Bruce, and I'm, I'm honored to be with you and honored to be with your center. Uh, and let me just say that for the record, that I consider what you've just said to be an ironclad pledge that you are going to invite me to Australia for an all expenses paid uh, academic tour. That was how I heard what it's you said. So, done, done. Yeah, okay, okay. good, good, that's great. Uh, my Center for Politics is 24 years old and we are dedicated, we're a very practical center. We're dedicated to civic participation and civic education. Uh, particularly among young people, so Victoria can can relate to this. Uh, we have a big program called the Youth Leadership Initiative in all 50 states, the Defense Department schools. We've actually had 5 million kids uh, throughout the United States from kindergarten through the college level educated in American basic civics uh, over the past 24 years, and we've got to close to 100,000 teachers enrolled in it. We produce the materials for free for them to teach in the classroom, uh, materials that we hope engage uh, the young people. Uh, I always tell, tell people this way, uh, I just want young people to understand that civics is not just a car made by Honda. Uh, it's an important part of citizenship. It's important for them to know the basics and to begin voting uh, very quickly after 
uh, they turn 18. And we don't have mandatory voting, as you well know, Bruce. So it's always a struggle to get people to the polls and especially young people. So, we, you know, we do lots of things, have a lot of speakers. We recently had Mike Pence, which was interesting. We have speakers from both parties, obviously. Uh, we were concerned because uh, at universities, uh, particularly in the last few years, it's been difficult for anybody from the Trump administration to appear without uh, some problems developing uh, with Mike Pence, for example, at Stanford not too long ago. But I'm delighted to report that uh, we all pulled it off here and we didn't have a single cat call for it, which I was very pleased to see. So a lot of things going on, uh, just as at your center, and we have a ball. And the incredible thing is that they pay us to do this. It's true. It's amazing. We're very happy. Uh, you, we talked about the Pence thing and really that at the university founded by Thomas Jefferson, it, it was just so important to be true to those principles of a free speech and rational pursuit of knowledge. And so, yes, the vice president would be welcome, no matter how you feel about him. And on your point on civics, I just kind of wish, I think it was Mark Shields who would say this, I just kind of wish when a, when a really terrible politician would emerge, I just kind of wish that they had taken a civics course in college that they'd understand what the hell governance is all about and public policy in the country, you know? That might apply yeah. to people that we think about from time to time. Um, yes, you would, you would expect the elected leaders to know more than they do. I can forgive average <laughs> citizens uh, a, a, a blank every now and then, but my goodness, you've uh, <laughs> had some problems recently. That's true. Um, let's go to the midterms in November and then we'll talk to 2024. Um, you know, as Tip O'Neill famously said, all politics is local. And actually what happened in Virginia last year, your local politics, I think it can be a prism through which, a lens through which we can look at what's happening this year and then what could happen ahead. I remember last summer, you know, Biden went to campaign with Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic nominee for governor. Um, Terry was very close with the Clintons. He was governor and uh, wanted to come back after you have single four-year terms as governor of Virginia. And then, so he'd, he'd come back after being out for, for some time. Um, both men were riding high. The analysis at the time was it was going to be a big Biden. Biden was doing fine. Big McAuliffe win. Buttress uh, the, the president at a you know time when he's trying to get his legislative agenda through. He gotten COVID relief through, working on the infrastructure bill. But it didn't happen. Uh, Glenn Youngkin, conservative Republican, financial titan, he won that race. Tell us what happened and why, and why it's really relevant to what's happening as the as the Democrats go into the midterms this year. Yes, you're absolutely right. Virginia and New Jersey are the only two states that elect governors in the year prior to a midterm election. And often the results of those two elections do suggest what's going to happen the following year. Not always, but usually. Uh, in Virginia, for example, since 1977, and electing a new governor every four years, the uh, incumbent White House party, with only one exception, has lost the governorship every single time in Virginia. So this was of a piece, this was of a pattern that stretched back uh, decades. In that sense, it wasn't surprising. But it was surprising because Terry McAuliffe was a former governor. It's very rare here to have a former governor try to regain his governorship after just four years of being out of office. And he was a heavy favorite, but you were right to point to the decline of Joe Biden, which sank Terry McAuliffe. That plus the Democrats splitting six ways to Sunday in Congress. And uh, McAuliffe was, was shocked. It was close. Um, Youngkin won by two points. But what, what shows that it wasn't 
a Virginia phenomenon is what happened in New Jersey, where the incumbent Democratic governor, uh, Phil Murphy, uh, was running for his second term, and all the polls showed him winning by a massive majority. And he ended up virtually in recount territory. He barely won re-election against a not very impressive Republican. And Biden had carried New Jersey by 16 points. He carried yeah. Virginia by 10. So the implication there was that uh, Biden had better try to get over 50, and he's nowhere near 50, which should give you an idea of what is likely to happen, not certain to happen because it's just May, right. but what's likely to happen in November. Uh, I, I remember I was on the Hill 10 years ago when uh, Obama was president, of course, and the Virginia and New Jersey elections came up and they and uh, lost both of them. And uh, that was a signal as to what would happen in the midterms the following year. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of rocked uh, Washington. But uh, tell us a little bit about Youngkin. Here we have we were talking beforehand. We, we have some teal candidates running in the in the uh, federal elect <laughs> election here and they're running in liberal seats, seats held by liberals, they're suburban seats, but they, they're, they're trending, in American talk, they'd be trending blue, democratic. So it's sort of like some Virginia suburbs. But Youngkin reconquered some of that territory that Obama had, uh, and Hillary Clinton carried uh, when he won the governorship last year. What is the appeal there to claw back some of that, uh, what had been thought solid emerging democratic territory? Bruce, he did claw back some, but really not very much. When you when you actually go down to the county and precinct level, what happened for Yunkin was Republicans in this state and in many states uh, had uh, lost for many elections. In Virginia, they'd lost everything. And we have elections every year. They'd lost everything uh, for a decade. So they were desperate to win. They were anxious to rally around someone who was relatively unknown. Youngkin had never held public office. He'd never run for public office. No one knew where he stood on most issues. So he got away with all the fuzziness and he was able to tiptoe through the tulips and avoid Donald Trump. He said good things about Trump, didn't admit that Biden was even president until several months after Biden had taken office. That pleased the Trump people. But he made certain that Trump never set foot in Virginia. He never appeared with Trump in any way, shape, or form. And that's what saved him. But what, what happened was Republicans were so desperate to get back in. Their turnout rate was unbelievably high. It was higher than it was in some counties uh, for Trump's election. And Yunkin actually got a higher percentage in almost all of these rural counties. It ranged up 85 to 90% of the vote. You have to go back to FDR's elections in the South to find counties that will vote 90% for one party's candidate. Right. And that overcame the margin for, uh, for McAuliffe in most of the big suburbs in Northern Virginia and in other places. So this was a flukish kind of election, and yet it has messages for both parties. Uh, for Democrats, they had better be concerned about the rural vote again. If they're losing it in massive landslides, they can't make up all, the, all that ground in uh, central cities and in suburbs and exurbs. And the, and the turnout factor is really important. If Democratic enthusiasm is down, because for Black Americans, voting rights isn't there, and we'll get to the abortion issue, whether that, how, you know, how that cuts, um, uh, police reform, gun control, you know, the, the, so much it's, if those, if, uh, equity for women, more equity for women, 
if that isn't delivered, if the Biden agenda isn't delivered, well, you wonder, well, do I really care so much about getting out to vote? But um, let's turn to the, so let's go national and the state of play for congressional races. Uh, what, how do you sense it's going to play for the House uh, and the outcome in November, as, as you see it right now? Well, we always have big surprises and maybe conditions will have changed dramatically by the fall, though I doubt it. Uh, I don't see any way that inflation is going to fall more than a couple of percentage points if it falls at all, and it's up in the 8% level. That is almost a nonpartisan election issue in that when people are upset about what they're paying at the gas pumps, and we're at, in record territory or near record territory now, when they're uh, going into the grocery store several times a a week and every time they have to pay more for staples. Uh, it almost doesn't matter what else is going on politically. And that may even be true with the abortion issue. So overall, uh, in my mind, at least as of May, it's really a question of the margin by which Republicans will win the House. Will it be close? Will it be medium? Will it be large? It's not going to be a 2010 level when Democrats lost 63 seats in the House, Obama's first midterm. Uh, because Democrats had run up the score in 2006 and 2008, and they had loads of seats that really they had no business having. They were, it was Republican territory. Well, that isn't true. Uh, even while winning with Biden in 2020, uh, Democrats managed to lose seats in the House. They nearly lost the House itself while Biden was winning by 7 million votes. Uh, so I would say... Um, the average is 26 seats. The incumbent White House party loses about 26, 27 seats in midterm elections. It could be somewhere in that territory. If things really turn south, uh, we could get a 30-seat uh, Republican gain. But 63 seats, no. The key for Democrats is not losing by such a wide margin that they can't regain the House if, if, giant if, Biden or some other Democrat can win the presidency again in 2024. Yes, um, you, you've uh, I think you've made a point in crystal ball just how um, uncompetitive so many an increasing number of House seats are. They really are Republican or Democratic based on how they're drawn and so forth. And there isn't that much uh, back and forth. They, they start with really kind of locked in support, but it, with these macro with these microeconomic conditions, how you're feeling when you go to the store, when you go to the gas pump and uh, a choppy uh, lived experience with COVID and uh, uncertainty about your economic future and so forth. Yeah, these, it becomes, and, and, and a president whose leadership is perceived as weaker than they want it to be. It, it really could affect well, them. Well, it, look, it looks so promising for Biden in the beginning. Yeah. And Democrats have a way, I guess both parties do this, but Democrats in particular, fool themselves a lot, uh, having looked at election returns for decades, they, they will see a close result as opening a, a new window or all the doors to everything they've ever dreamed of having. And that's what they did after 2020. They ignored the fact that they had lost House seats. Uh, they ignored the fact that uh, until early January of 2021, they had not made the progress in the Senate they had hoped to make. They didn't carry the Senate until those two special Georgia elections. And most of all, when you've got a 50-50 Senate, you can't count on anything. It's not as though all Democrats are in the same situation coming from diverse states. 
They knew Joe Manchin was from a, uh, that is the Democratic senator from West Virginia, who's fairly conservative, was from a 70% Trump state. How they ever fooled themselves into thinking that somehow Manchin was going to vote for all these new Democratic programs when he hopes to be reelected in a 70% Trump state. And you know what? This has worked out nicely for him. He was uh, well below 50% popularity at the beginning of the Biden administration. He has played this uh, fiddle quite well. And West Virginians have been dancing to his tune. His popularity is now up close to 60% because he's seen as the bulwark against uh, Biden and the liberal democratic programs. So it's worked out beautifully for Joe Biden. It's worked out horribly for uh, Democrats as a whole and for the Biden administration in particular. And there's, yes, Kirsten Sinema in Arizona, but that would take another whole hour to explain why she uh, is so resistant to democratic programs. So uh, it was the overreading of the election returns that led to a lot of this. What gave Biden his his, uh, strong start was the COVID relief package infrastructure bill, but they could not get, for all the reasons you're talking, 50 senators to hang together to get the Build Back Better through. And I I do think the absence of that delivering programs that provide for your economic security, for your kids going to school, for your health care costs, to take care of your parents, uh, that has not been delivered. And I think that does depress uh, enthusiasm among Democrats. Is there anything do you think that could be put together between now and say September that could be passed, even with Manchin, Cinema, and the dynamics in the Senate, that could provide a lift to Biden to cushion what could be coming in November? Yes, uh, but it's going to be a very small package compared to the massive one that they had prepared, trillion plus uh, programs. Uh, exactly what it is. I don't know, and neither does anybody else, but I'll tell you, if they really want it to happen, you know what they should do, and they know what they should do. They should go to Joe Biden, uh, to uh, Joe Manchin, hat in hand, and ask him to create a smaller program that he would vote for. Yes. And the rest of the Democrats, uh, they'll have to swallow hard, and they can whine and complain and send out nasty tweets and, you know, hold press conferences. But in the end, they better vote for it because it's all they're going to get. And probably it's all they're going to get for the entirety of Biden's first, maybe only, but first term. So they have to bite the bullet here. Will they? Uh, you know, we always go back to to uh, a humorist, Will Rogers in the 1920s, who said, I belong to no organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That's right. It's still true. It's still true. It's absolutely still true. But let's bring in the Senate here. There seem to be five or six really key races that will determine the, out, uh, the outcome in the Senate. And, uh, and I do think uh, abortion politics may play differently in the House as opposed to the Senate. We can talk about that too. But just a, an overview of the key Senate races that you see and, and where it might land. Is there, still, is there still an outside chance that the Democrats could yet hold the Senate after November? Yes, and that's the right way to put it. It's an outside chance. It's not minuscule, though. When we're talking about you know, 30, 35, 40% chance, depending on what the circumstances are in the fall, that Democrats can manage to keep a 50-50 Senate or maybe even get a 51-49 Senate. It's not the probability, which I don't think they accept, but it is very possible that they can, mainly because of the abortion decision and maybe some other things that may happen, like the January 6th investigation. 
uh, and, the, and the results that we're gonna see. And that's gonna be more impressive than most people think. They don't know everything they've got and they've got a lot. Now, is it gonna convince any Republicans? Of course not. Maybe a tiny slice of establishment Republicans uh, to vote Democratic, but I doubt it. But what it will do potentially is to anger and therefore energize Democratic turnout, which is also what the abortion decision by the court, assuming that the draft opinion is the real opinion that comes out in June. Uh, so on the, on the Senate seats, look, you, you take it from a macro perspective first. We only elect a third of the Senate every two years, and it's a different set of states every two years. This happens to be a set of states because of circumstances, because of the incumbents running, because of vacancies. Uh, when you look at the Senate as a whole, it's not a bad map for, for Democrats. It's not a disastrous map for Democrats. They have some things they can work with. And Senate races tend to be idiosyncratic. Uh, if there's one place left in American politics, other than presidential elections, where uh, personal characteristics of the candidates can matter and their backgrounds can matter, it's probably Senate races. Although I should mention, it's much less so than it used to be. The, the two most important letters in the English language, at least in our country, are R and D. Uh, R and D explain the vast majority of the votes. Uh, it can't explain turnout necessarily, but it explains the votes that are actually cast. It's very small, relatively small independent vote, despite uh, studies by Gallup that say 40% of Americans are independent. No, they aren't. It's single digits, single digits. They can make the difference in close elections, but not uh, in the country as a whole. So now let me get to the microscopic part of the Senate discussion. If you're looking for changes, you look to one Republican seat, maybe two. The one you definitely look at is Pennsylvania, where Democrats have a real chance to win. Again, I don't know what the probability is, but they're in the hunt. Uh, we'll see who the Republicans nominate. That, that primary is coming up. And of course, President Trump is, has endorsed one candidate and a lot of his cabinet have endorsed another candidate. So uh, we'll see what happens there. But Democrats have uh, two top candidates. and I could see either one of them winning the Senate seat under the right circumstances. The other Senate seat that Democrats might win is Wisconsin, where Senator Ron Johnson, who's a very controversial two-term Republican incumbent, is coming up again. And uh, Wisconsin is an interesting state on the abortion question. Uh, I think that may influence the election there as well. So those are two seats where Democrats are really in the hunt. Now, the Republicans have more shots at more seats. Uh, Georgia, one of the two seats that Democrats gained is up because it was a partial term. Uh, Senator Raphael Warnock uh, is in a race with probably Herschel Walker, who's a football star and has, I don't want to get into it, but let's just say loads of personal problems and let's leave it at that. Uh, the reason he is the likely nominee is because Donald Trump insisted, insisted that Herschel Walker be the nominee. Mitch McConnell, who only wants winners. There's one thing, when McConnell picks a candidate, you can be sure of one thing. It's the person most likely to win in November. That's all that matters to McConnell. He wants to be majority leader again. But Herschel Walker is going to be the choice, and he's going to have to live with all those very difficult prior controversies. But 
Um, in, in polling so far, he's about even with Warnock. Some polls he's been ahead. Some polls Warnock has been ahead. Arizona is going to be a tough race for Democrats, even though Senator Mark Kelly is relatively popular. It's Arizona. And often when you have a wobble toward the Democrats in a close competitive state like Arizona or Georgia in a presidential year, then two years later, you'll have a wobble back to the other party in the midterm elections. So uh, I think Kelly uh, is going to have a tough race. Uh, Nevada is, is very close as well. One-term Democratic incumbent, a woman incumbent. She is in a state that has been leaning Democratic, but only just leaning. And Republicans have been doing well there, though, again, she's going to capitalize on the Supreme Court's abortion decision. The one race so far where I think abortion is already making a difference for the Democrat is New Hampshire, which is a libertarian state. Their slogan is live free or die, and they mean it. Live free or die. And uh, they, they are very opposed to any limitation on personal rights. And the Democrat, uh, Senator Maggie Hassan, who's the incumbent, is on the right side, or really the left side, of abortion uh, for New Hampshire. And that's where you want to be for this election. Um, there are other possibilities uh, that, that could be competitive. I think I've covered most of them. Um, yeah, I've covered most of them. They're always a, a surprise here or there. You know, we always look at North Carolina and they always vote Republican. I don't know why we look at it anymore. I, I agree with you on North Carolina. Um, but but I, I also think, it, uh, just to drill a little bit deeper, I think this is where the abortion issue really comes to play more in the Senate races than the House races. I mean, the House races are just more binary. If you're R, you're R. If you're D, you're D and so forth. But across the state, it transcends the districts. And so you really get a popular vote in each state uh, that's factored into, uh, sorry, the issues as, as reified by the popular vote that gets factored <coughs> in. And I, th and, uh, there, I think there will be a, a wave uh, that started by this tsunami of the Supreme Court where um, uh, that the abortion issue can cut for Democrats in some of, in some of these more competitive states, like like particularly Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, in the, in November. So it's um, it, but what I'm not clear on is uh, the Senate is going to to vote this week on whether to pass a national law which would protect abortion rights. It will fail, and at one point it energizes. At the beginning, right now, it's red hot. It just energizes people. But if it goes down, the Supreme Court rules. Nothing can pass Congress to protect abortion rights. Do Democrats who are so concerned about, do they just turn off as well and just say, uh, I just can't get enthusiastic because I'm not getting anything here? Is that a possible factor? Well, they'll attribute it to the court. And most Americans know the court is really controlled by conservative Republicans for a combination of reasons. But they've got five hardcore votes out of nine. Uh, and obviously, Chief Justice Roberts was trying to win over one, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the release of the document makes it more difficult for Roberts to change any mind, which is why I'm guessing, and it's a pure guess, that the, the leak maybe came from one of the more conservative elements uh, working in the court. But regardless of who leaked it, what's important about this is uh, who's it's affecting and how long it's going to affect them. I know Victoria studies the youth vote. Uh, I've been interested in watching the results, the, the reactions to this leak of the document, where people are angriest. You've had a lot of walkouts by high school students 
that tells you something because it's it's kind of difficult to get them active and involved in politics. But you know, the abortion issue, in a sense, because of age and all kinds of other factors, uh, is more relevant to them than it may be to those uh, in my age category. Uh, so this may last. And the other thing people are not focusing on is the instant the court releases this opinion, if it is a majority opinion, you're going to see trigger laws in about 16 states that are going to pull America back to pre-Roe, pre-Roe v. Wade. One restriction on abortion after another in state after state after state. In some of the states, abortion clinics will be history. There won't be any. In some states, uh, women who want to get an abortion will have to travel thousands of miles to have an abortion performed. Even, and this is amazing to me, even in cases of rape and incest, they're not even making exceptions in many of these states for rape and incest. Most of the, the Republicans from a generation ago automatically included those exceptions, plus the life of the mother. So this is going to be a daily story. Day after day after day, it is not going to be resolved quickly. Some of the state legislatures controlled by the Republicans, and they control more than the Democrats do nationally, are going to pass additional legislation. Some are going to try and prevent abortion entirely. So don't think this is going away. This is not a June phenomenon, and everybody forgets about it by November. It's going to be a daily phenomenon that will have an impact on the youth vote and suburban women. Right. I wrote an, an article, an essay yesterday, and I said, for the first time since the Civil War, the Underground Railroad may run again and have women Absolutely. traveling to states where abortion is legal. And the hand and by the way, do you know some of the states are already working on legislation to ban the abortion pill, the, yes. uh, the pill that women can take uh, to generate an internal abortion without an operation? They're already working on that. They're working on uh, criminalizing, mailing it from any part of the United States into, into their state. Uh, people have no idea what's coming. They have not focused on it, but they will. And yes, and you have the, the Handmaid's Tale come to life in Canada, where Canada says, we will provide medical services for you if you come up, come across the border. So it is, yeah, it is one hell of a world. Um, one last question then over to Victoria, please. Um, in 2018, the, the midterms were seen by the Democrats as a referendum on President Trump. Democrats took control of the House. And so is this a referendum this year on President Biden? Is that how you're, is that the main driver here? It always is in midterm elections. Now, Biden is not the kind of uh, figure that Trump was. We used to joke that Trump bestrode the stage like Godzilla. He was everything. You know, you listen to every growl uh, and he growled all day long via Twitter. Uh, Biden is not that at all. But presidents like Biden always absorb whatever the circumstances of the election year are. And the fact of the matter is, he was elected because he wasn't Trump, but also because he projected experience and competence. Uh, we know, because we follow all this very closely, presidents don't control the inflation rate. They don't control much about the economy. They don't control lots of things that happen. But average voters don't see it that way. 
they're angry, they're going to blame somebody, and who would they blame? They blame the president. The president absorbs the blame. As long as Joe Biden is in the low 40s, which is about where Donald Trump was for most of his presidency, then that's going to express itself at the polls, and it's not going to be favorable for Democrats. I don't see any way to avoid that. So yes, Biden is the center of this. Presidential uh, approval ratings, or at least the polling average, uh, to me, that's the summary statistic of politics in any year. Where is politics in a year? Look first at the approval rating for the president. And you can make a pretty good guess, even if you've been asleep for a few months. Yes. Excellent. Thank you. Victoria, over to you, please. Oh, yeah, thank you. And I mean, I've just been furiously taking notes. There's so much wisdom in this conversation. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things to keep an eye on. Um, I think, yeah, something I'd like to know about, and I mean, we've talked a little bit about this with abortion, and we've just started touching on inflation and the idea that Biden absorbs um, whatever the circumstances around the midterms are. Um, I guess, yeah, we saw it in the gubernatorial election in Virginia, um, issues like parents' rights, uh, critical race theory in schools, uh, education kind of come to the fore as an issue there. And I wonder how these kind of uh, culture wars or kind of woke issues kind of balance against more macro or microeconomic issues like inflation and um, the cost of living. How, how do you think voters are going to toss up? Do you think uh, that maybe now abortion will persuade them to vote in a certain way? Or, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, uh, over to you on that. Uh, any, any kind of comment on culture wars would be great. Sure. Uh, I've, I've said for decades, there are four emotions that govern politics, love, hate, hope, fear. And I'm old and I'm cynical, but I think this is accurate. Fear and hate drive a lot more voting than do love and hope. Uh, maybe not in every year, although I really can't think of a year, despite Obama's slogan in 2008 about hope and change. Uh, and so the cultural issues cause fear and they drive hate. And this doesn't convert voters. It motivates partisans to vote. Again, one of the myths about the Virginia election is that somehow Young can use these issues to win over loads of Democrats or loads of parents who normally vote Democratic. There was a handful. And the estimate is that Youngkin won about 5% of the votes cast for Biden uh, in the previous year among the voters who actually voted in the presidential election. Of course, McAuliffe won 2% of the Trump voters. There's no explaining a lot of votes. They just happen that way. But it wasn't an enormous group of voters. Uh, but the turnout, as I mentioned before, on the Republican side was so high, so enormous. And they were driven by desperation, but also by these cultural issues. You're going to see the same thing this year. They're going to model uh, some of the campaigns after the Virginia election. They already are. They're already using some of these same issues, critical race theory. I've, I've always said, if you want to understand critical race theory, dispense with the critical and throw away theory. And then you're left with what it's really about. Uh, and that motivates a lot of voters in conservative red territory. Uh, any of the issues you can mention, but remember there's, there's now a cultural issue, abortion on the other side, which is going to have uh, an intensity that perhaps will be lacking uh, when you're trying to ban books, which some of these states are trying to do, including Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think you're touching on an issue that 
um, I mean, we've been talking about a lot, a lot about turnout um, and how to motivate people to come and to vote. And we know uh, in 2020, two cohorts that turned out in large numbers for Biden were both black voters and people under 30. Um, and I mean, as we've sort of talked about as well, that Biden's agenda last year um, largely failed to deliver on some of the promises that he made to these cohorts. So things like, you know, climate change and healthcare spending and voting rights legislation. What can Biden and the Democrats do this year before November to motivate those people to turn out to vote, maybe in, in, inspired by hope, perhaps? <laughs> Well, let's take young people again. Uh, obviously, I, I see them every day. I teach them during the semesters every day. Uh, and you study their voting patterns. Uh, they're going to respond to uh, something concrete that affects their life. So for months now, more than months, uh, the Biden administration has been talking about wiping out maybe $10,000 of college debt for uh, all students that have accumulated that or former students that have accumulated that. And, and I think that's helpful. Um, knowing students who are burdened by debt, overwhelmed by debt, I, I'm in favor of it. But we need to remember that most young people in the United States and in most countries have not had the benefit of a college education. And there are also those who've had a college education who've already paid off their debt and may resent the fact that younger students are getting $10,000 wiped out. So there are always subsidiary factors in these matters. I've, I've mentioned abortion. I don't want to bring it up again, but I think that's another factor that Democrats can use to uh, energize the, the youth vote. As far as, as Latinos, Hispanics, this, this is developing into a real problem for Democrats. You know, at first I thought, well, you know, it's just Florida and Texas, because for years, Hispanics in those two states, for various reasons, certainly Cuban Americans in Florida, have moved toward the Republicans in certain years and for certain candidacies. But now we're seeing it all over the place. We're even seeing it in California, which is a naturally very liberal and democratic state. So Democrats have got to have an active program to re-engage them. Part of this is a result of uh, the disparity now between blue-collar, non-college Americans, white Americans, and uh, college-educated Americans. College-educated moving more and more toward the Democratic Party, but they're a minority. That's not a majority of the country. And blue-collar workers who are moving more toward Republicans, some of it's cultural issue, some of it's the economy, some of it's personality. Uh, incredibly, Trump attracted some people he was denouncing. Uh, you would think in the Hispanic community, they liked his his strong leadership, if you could call it that. That's what they were attracted to. So Democrats have a big problem there, and they've got to devote more resources and time to thinking about it because Hispanics are not just going to naturally gravitate back to Democrats in the three quarters to one quarter uh, proportions that Democrats were used to getting for a while, or two thirds, one third, depending on the election. And that's just one example there. With even uh, Black Americans, you have a certain defection rate now that's larger than it has been. That might snap back to Democrats under the right circumstances without uh, any, any strong efforts on Democratic leadership part. But I wouldn't count on that. You know, the fact is uh, that Democrats are losing a larger proportion of Blacks. They're still getting 85% or so of the Black vote, but 
they were used to getting in some elections, you know, 95, 96%. On average, it was more around 90, 91%. But every percentage point matters when we're having close elections. People don't focus on the fact that Joe Biden, who won by 7 million votes, didn't win by 7 million votes. He won by 43,000 votes that were distributed perfectly among Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. 43,000 votes elected Joe Biden because of our electoral college system. That's too close for comfort. You can't look at the 7 million votes because millions of them come out of California. So it doesn't matter under the electoral college system. A large portion come out of New York and Illinois. They don't matter because of the electoral college system. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I guess I guess something that we're interested in at the United States Study Center is how what happens in America affects us here. And so I wonder if the predictions for Biden and Blake, or at least Biden's um, triple hold of the House Senate and Executive is not looking so um, promising in November, what does that mean for his policy priorities and the way that he's going to interact, uh, I guess, with the legislature going forward? And how might that affect his relationship like with allies like Australia? Well, on certain issues, say Ukraine, I think uh, they can reach accommodations. And, and Biden does have the skill set to do that. I mean, he's been a creature of Washington since 1973. That goes back a long time. Biden, however, is also partly living in a long dead era, uh, the era of bipartisanship. That's, that's gone with the wind. And it's, I don't think it's going to be back, certainly in my lifetime. That's not saying much. But uh, it's not going to be back for a long time. So uh, Biden seems to believe in bipartisanship more than he should. And he's not going to see much of it at all in the final two years of this term. Uh, Republicans are not going to pass anything that the base, the Republican base, doesn't like. And there are very few things that Joe Biden would propose that the Republican base will like. And boy, are Democrats going to be unhappy with that. They're, they think the first two years has been unproductive. Wait till they see what's going to happen in the next two years. Now, what does Biden have? He has the veto power. He can stop anything that happens. Republicans can't override a veto. They don't have the votes and executive orders. And I think he'll push the edge of the envelope the way presidents always do when they don't control Congress. So he will try to do things that courts may throw out because they consider them to be beyond the powers of the presidency, beyond the powers of executive action. But Biden will at least try. He'll get credit within the Democratic Party for trying, assuming he's willing to do that. I think he will be. He's going to be angered a lot the next two years. Uh, I, I don't know that he's fully focused on that, but he's going to be angered a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm I'm just sitting with the idea that you know you're unlikely to see bipartisanship in your lifetime. I think that's not politics as we know it. It's a very different style of governance, and um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens going forward. And hopefully, there can be some level of cooperation. I guess that brings me to my last question before we go to some audience questions. I mean, I would like, if at all possible, to finish on something positive. Uh, I think the future of democracy can sometimes look a bit bleak in America, at least from the Australian perspective, what we're watching unfold, um, and that idea of the eroding um, eroding bipartisanship in the eroding centre. Is there anything that's restored your faith in the, you know, endurance of democracy in America or democratic institutions in America? Is there anything at all good that we can take away um, going towards the midterms this year? 
Well, I'm not going to say no, because (laughs) now that you phrased it that way, it would be too depressing. Uh, I'll mention two things. One is going to strike many people as being saccharine, but I believe it. I've been uh, I've been associated with the University of Virginia for 52 years. And I've been teaching all of those semesters in between. I've, I've had, you know, 20, 25,000 students and I'm around them every day. And that's what saves me because they don't know what can't be done. Now, unfortunately, they also frequently don't know what has been done or what has been tried and failed, but they believe they can get things done. They believe they're going to do a better job. And I suppose that's true of every generation coming up. They can do better than their parents and their grandparents, but it's encouraging because they want to try and they believe uh, in so many things that they can make a difference on, whether it's climate change or, you know, the homeless or just run the gamut of the issues. So that is positive and it's still there and I see it daily. So I know it isn't something that is merely seasonal. The, uh, the thing that gives me some optimism that is maybe on the negative side, at least for a lot of people, I have more faith than almost anybody, apparently, in the January 6th committee. Now, maybe it's because I have a better idea than most do of what, um, what they're going to reveal. Uh, not all the details, and they are very confidential as they have to be, but um, this is going to be more powerful than people think. There are going to be a lot of public hearings that they're going to have televised hearings, some in the evening during June. I'm not saying it'll be like the Watergate hearings. You know, back then, every nothing got done in the country. We have the productivity rate fell to zero. Everybody watched every minute of the Watergate hearings. It won't be like that at all. For one thing, we have 400 channels, so there are plenty of, of diversions. Uh, but what people are going to see is that we came far closer than most people have accepted to an overthrow of the U.S. system. We had a coup d'etat that could easily have succeeded. And you know what saved us? It's something nobody ever mentions. Donald Trump and his minions actually thought he was going to win. And truth be told, if the pandemic hadn't happened, I think he would have been elected to a second term via the Electoral College. He's never going to win the popular vote. If he runs again in 2024, whether he wins or loses, he's never going to win the popular vote, except that. But our system is based on the Electoral College. He can, with relative ease, win the Electoral College. So uh, they had they had really, in their mind, been reelected. Trump was absolutely sure he was going to be reelected, and most of the key people around him believed he would be too. And they came close enough, as I've mentioned. Uh, That means they didn't get started on this plot until the days after the election. Well, it was already uh, getting on mid-November by the time they got organized. And they only had until January 6th when, when Congress validated the electoral Uh, votes from the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. That's what saved us. We had enough time and enough people who were willing to stand up for the American Republic to keep the first coup d'etat since arguably Lincoln was assassinated. That was an attempted uh, coup d'etat, kind of strangely, but it was an attempted coup d'etat. The first one since 1865, and it could have succeeded. It could have succeeded. 
And people need to understand that. They need to accept that reality in order to prevent this from happening again. Because if Trump gets back in, I'm sorry to be so blunt about it, uh, he's going to, I don't know whether he would run again, I doubt it, given his age, but he'll have some Trump substitute. And they'll do what's necessary to get that person elected in all probability. So we're, we're talking about the very essence of the American Republic. And people need to wake up to the reality. You know, it isn't a bunch of clowns uh, in the street, you know, running into the Capitol, although some of them weren't clowns. They were very dangerous people that uh, ended up hurting uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of policemen. Uh, but they need to accept this reality. Uh, and Donald Trump knows very well at some level of his consciousness that he's made the whole thing up. This big lie, voter fraud, get real. That's my field. It's the field of, of many other people who've looked at this very closely. There wasn't any voter fraud. This is all made up by Donald Trump to explain why he lost. And it's not just to protect his ego. It's a four-year plan to get it right the next time. They didn't have enough time to organize it last time. This time, they have four years. And so they're running candidates for secretary of state in the key uh, swing states so they can run the elections. And they're going to run up their totals in the state legislatures this year. They're going to get additional governors, and they've already got more governors than the Democrats have. Uh, this is a real danger. We're still in crisis. And people act as though it was one day in January. They couldn't be more wrong. Yeah, well, that was both incredibly uplifting and also very harrowing. <laughs> well, it should be harrowing. I'm glad that you interpreted it that way. And I hope everybody listening understands that it is harrowing and everybody has got to pull together to make sure that the big lie doesn't succeed. And, you know, it's it's moved along nicely in Trump's view. Mm, absolutely. And I, I guess we'll move on to some audience questions. Um, and this one comes from Timothy Lawler. And I guess you were talking just then about, you know, if Trump doesn't run, perhaps it'll be a Trump substitute. And we've seen already that uh, Trump has been quite busy endorsing candidates in the Senate primaries. We saw with J.D. Vance in Ohio last week. Um, and so Timothy's question is, will Trump's endorsements help or harm the Republican candidates in the midterm elections? Well, they, his endorsement helps considerably in primaries. It doesn't mean his endorsee will win in every case. J.D. Vance got nominated in Ohio, and there's no question Trump was the major reason why, along with his favorite billionaire, Peter Thiel, who gave uh, $10 million or something like that to Vance to win a primary. <laughs> I mean, we, we spend... We spend now, you know, we're, we're up to the billions of dollars uh, for every national election. People can't believe how much money is out there for politics, but the stakes are very high. So Trump, Trump will have an influence in races. Uh, the Pennsylvania Senate race is going to be very interesting because there's a Dr. Oz running who for many years uh, was on television until very recently running a medical advice show. Now, you know, some of it was good and some of it he pushed some quack remedies of one sort or another. Uh, but he is Trump's candidate. You know why he's Trump's candidate? Because Dr. Oz was on television. And that's what Trump really respects. When you've been on television, you've had a successful run on television like The Apprentice. Uh, that's going to be interesting because a lot of the Trump people support a, uh, a, a private equity guy named McCormick. 
and uh, he's running about even with Oz. But the point is, for primaries, Trump has a major influence. He can't pick every candidate, but he has a major influence. In the general election, if it's a red state, it will help. If it's a deeply red state, it may make all the difference. But if it's a blue state, it's deadly. If it's a purple state, I think it damages the candidate. Doesn't guarantee that Trump's candidate will lose, but it's damaging because it will energize the Democratic vote. Um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag. It's always a mixed bag in politics in every country, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I, I well, I mean, yeah, I, I guess, well, we might change course. I'm just, I'm conscious of the time. There's so many ways that we could take this conversation. Um, I guess, again, on this idea of bipartisanship and compromise and that traditional concept of politics, I guess something we haven't talked about much today or could talk about a little bit more is, is Ukraine. So this, this question comes from Stephen Mills. He asks, uh, is there still a rally around the flag effect that might help Biden in November, especially with regard to Ukraine? And likewise, won't the pro-Russian stance of Trump hurt Republicans? Uh, look, uh, is there still a rally around the flag effect? Sure. If, God forbid, we have another 9-11. If Americans uh, go to war themselves, is there going to be a rally around the flag effect because Biden is sending, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars worth of equipment to Ukraine? And we're all clearly rooting for Ukraine, almost all are rooting for Ukraine to win. No, there's not going to be a rally around the flag effect. It, it's too indirect. Uh, so, so Biden may get generalized credit for doing the right thing, and he ought to get credit for keeping us out of it, because it, it would lead to potential escalation moving toward nuclear. That's the last thing anybody should want. So we do have to be uh, careful, but there's less political value in it for Biden because he is being careful. Mm. Was there another part of that question that I've forgotten already? No, no, I, I believe that you answered that well. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um, okay, well, I might just sneak in one more then. I, I do like this question. This is from Justin Patey. Um, how dangerous in terms of the future of democracy in the US is DeSantis and the prospect of his being the Republican candidate in 2024? Well, I like to say that, that uh, DeSantis is a smarter Trump. Uh, he's, uh, he's uh, very able in terms of the maneuverings uh, involved in politics, he seems as dogmatic, if not more dogmatic than Trump, who of course had a very mixed political background of left, right, middle, and nonsense um, prior to running uh, for president and even during the presidency in some respects. Uh, DeSantis is a down the line right-wing Republican. And as he proved, in taking on Disney, he'll take risks and he'll bash heads. Uh, he knows it's going to cause screams of pain and agony, but he also knows it's going to generate cheers on his side and larger turnout, more dedicated activism and volunteerism for him. So yeah, he's, um, he's positioned himself to be probably the natural successor to Trump if Trump doesn't run. And remember, Trump, as with Biden, they're both so old. Anything can happen at that age. I wish everybody good health, but let's be honest. As you get older and older, especially when you're in high-pressure jobs, uh, there are things that can happen. 
So we're not sure that uh, we're not absolutely sure that Biden will run again. He's saying he will run again. Let's see what the situation is in 2024. For Trump, exactly the same. Let's see how what his health is like. Let's also see whether he believes that he's going to win again if he runs. He is not about to run if he's going to lose, because that would that would present a record of two losses to one win. And the one win was based on the Electoral College, and he lost the popular vote by three million. He's not going to go for that. He's going to he's going to pass the baton. Mm, mm, uh, well, I guess with with November coming up, and I guess with the future of Biden's presidency, there's a lot of uh, I guess we'll wait and see. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, thank you very much for for your time and for answering these questions. I know I've really felt enriched by the discussion, and there's lots to walk away and ruminate on. So yeah, I really appreciate that. I might just hand over to Bruce to finish us up. Thanks, Larry. Thank just, you so much, Victoria. Just, thank you. you. A, great, a great discussion with the two of you. Thank you so much. And to those who uh, asked questions, um, I really, uh, and thanks for reminding us on the hearings in June. I agree with you. They're going to have a huge impact on the country. It's going to be a split screen summer. The Supreme Court is ruling while the House committee is uh, investigating the insurrection. Quite uh, potent. Uh, we're coming up to an election here. So I really want to have one last question on mandatory voting. It, the, 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 no, no, the, es the essence of the democratic, of the crisis in democracy is on voting rights in America. Who votes, who counts? And here we have mandatory voting. What, do you, what are Americans' impressions when they hear about a system like Australia's? I mean, do some of them just want to uh, exercise their Second Amendment rights and get a rifle and say, I'm going to blow your head off if you come at me with mandatory voting? But how do, how do Americans see how this democracy functions? Yeah, well, uh, Bruce, our friend uh, E.J. Dionne, of course, has a new book about, about mandatory voting, among other topics, uh, Washington Post columnist, and I, I recommend it to you. Uh, he'd be delighted if you went to Amazon.com or an independent bookstore, wherever you like to shop and, and buy his book. Uh, look, uh, I, I think I, I personally like it. I, I've, all, I've supported it for a long time, but let, I think it's going to be next to impossible to get something like that adopted in the United States. Apologies, DJ. Uh, you know, I have, I have one practical anecdote. Once I was running a forum and had several hundred people in the audit audience. We were mainly talking about this, that, and the other, all kinds of subjects. And it was getting a little tedious and boring. And so I, I decided to throw out the idea of mandatory voting to see what they thought. The room erupted. At, 90% of Republicans and Democrats and independents in there were outraged that they would be forced to vote. Again, live, free, or die. That's New Hampshire's slogan, but it applies to a lot of the United States. So uh, I always kid about reforms like that. It's scheduled to be adopted here on the 12th of never. So there you go. That's fine. We're having a new slogan here, uh, vote free and live. How about that? <laughs> well, that's good. I like it. I, it's more positive and upbeat. I like that. <laughs> well, we'll report to you on the elections here. Um, you are welcome. You are hereby invited to come in 2024 and call the presidential race for us here in Australia. That's uh, great. And, uh, I want a full tour. I want a full tour. The full tour. We'll, we'll take you from the Margaret River up to the up to the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, no problem. Okay. And. Uh, Larry, thank you. Thanks for being with us uh, this evening in Washington. Absolutely. You illuminate America's democracy and the challenges. Victoria, thanks to you. Janine, everyone at the staff for doing this. 
a good day to everyone and thank you for joining us.